Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Meredith Heller about her new book, Queering Drag, Redefining the Discourse of Gender Bending, published by Indiana University Press in 2020. Drawing on a rich body of archival and ethnographic research, Queering Drag illuminates diverse examples of theatrical gender bending. It shows how, in each case, standard drag discourses do not sufficiently capture the complexity of performers' intents and methods or provide a strong enough foundation for holistically evaluating the impact of this work. Queering Drag offers a redefinition of the genre centralized in the performer's construction and presentation of a queer version of hegemonic identity. It also models a new set of tools for analyzing drag as a process of intents and methods enacted to effect specific goals. The book won the 2021 John Leo and Dana Heller Award for Best Book in LGBTQ Studies from the Popular Culture Association and was named one of NBC's 10 LGBTQ books to watch out for in 2020. Dr. Meredith Heller is Associate Teaching Professor in the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Northern Arizona University, where she has taught since 2014. She earned a PhD in theater studies with a feminist studies doctoral emphasis from the University of California, Santa Barbara. She specializes in queer theory and critical identity studies with additional expertise in performance studies, digital media, and popular culture. Meredith, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Pleasure to be here with you today. So before we start, I just have to tell you this because I love it when theory and praxis align. And reading your book gave me the language and the tools to describe and understand my friend Gabriel's drag. Uh, Gabriel Morales, also known as Yoyorando, that's his uh, drag name, is a trans man from Monterrey, Mexico, and his performances defy any traditional drag definitions. And people kept asking him what he was, and he would tell people, I'm not a drag king or a drag queen, I'm drag queer. So reading your book just made me think so much about Gabriela and I miss him so. But uh, tell us how did Queering Drag come about, or as I like to say it here, tell us your book's origin story. You know, there's a lot of drag performers like your friend who do drag. And so I love that you know it and I know it. And hopefully the book shows people that there are more types of drag. So I'm so glad that that spoke to you. It, it, it was a really big impetus for me writing. So the origin story of my book, there's two stories. One is like fun and exciting. And it's the one that I use for like job interviews to make myself look glamorous. And then there's the real one. They're both kind of real. And so I'm going to tell you both. They're both in the book. So um, the glamorous one is that um, I went to an all girls high school and I was really involved with the theater program there. And um, they would cast the plays from the pool of available actors, which was like teenage girls. And so I got really used to playing all sorts of roles, including men roles. And when I went to college, I majored in uh, theater. And one year they were putting on Angels in America and I read the script and I was really into the character of Roy Cohen and I wanted to audition for that part. 
Um, but it wasn't a cross-casted part and there was no vision by the director to cross-cast it. And so I didn't even read for that role. And I just started thinking like, theater is this place where it's supposed to have this willing suspension of disbelief, you know? And even within theater, there were rules about when you could bend gender, like when it was supposed to be um, something that you could do, like what was the impetus behind it? What was the effect? So that really got me thinking about the rules of bending within theater. And then the the less exciting um, origin story is when you apply to PhD school, you have to propose a project. So I said, I want to study gender bending, and I specifically wanted to look at cast, these casting decisions, right? And I got into PhD school, and I was talking about embodied performers, you know, men playing women and women playing men. And that was totally fine in a theater studies program. But I was also TAing for feminist studies. Um, and in our intro courses, you know, the first thing that we teach students is that your la- your language and your logic choices are really important and they should not be essentialist, right? And so when I would talk about my project in feminist studies circles, I wouldn't have the words to not be essentialist. And then when I would talk about my project in theater spaces, I would feel really embarrassed that I didn't have these words. So finally, I just got fed up and I said, I think that I need to make a definition, like a little tool for myself, which is what I did. So I think you can see in the book, like the first chapter is me developing that tool. And then the other chapter is that project of exploring all the different kinds of bending. Well, but before that, we have a preface that talks about a debate that you were invited to participate in, along with uh, Miss Cracker, the famous drag queen of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. And you were asked to discuss whether or not drag is degrading to women. And that's something that I've been <laughs> I'm asked a lot too. So mm-hmm. uh, I was curious to see what you, what you were going to say. But you write that your answer to that question depends on what we mean when we say drag. So to get us started, a pretty complicated question, right? How do you define drag? When I did that interview, that was before Miss Cracker um, was on RuPaul's Drag Race, and she had just she had written this brilliant essay. She's so smart, and so they brought her on. And here's another totally unimportant but weird fact. Um, Ms. Cracker's uh, name is Max Heller and my name is Meredith Heller and the producer was like, are you related? And I was like, no, it's just a common name. So anyway, um, when I define drag, what I say is drag is any act that presents a queer stage picture of identity or any act that confronts or queers identity relations. So to, to understand what's different about that, um, I want to take it back to like, what is the traditional definition of drag? Like what it, what is grandma going to know drag as? Like if you Google it, what's going to show up? Sometimes I do this exercise with my students. They never want to give me the answer, but then we Google it and it just pops up. So if you define a drag queen, for instance, it's going to say the pop culture definition is like a man who performs as a woman, or it's going to say a man who performs um, femininity. So what it's going to say is somebody is embodied within their assigned sex and their attached gender identity. So a cis man, and they perform what they are not. They perform something opposed. So a man is not feminine and a man is not a woman. So they perform it on stage and that's um, drag. 
And that's one type of drag for sure. We see that drag. You know that drag. I know that drag. People who watch RuPaul's Drag Race know that drag because it's like very popular. So it definitely is a valid form of drag. Um, But that definition of drag only captures that one type of drag. Um, This is something that Donna Haraway calls a partial perspective. It's an objective truth, but it's only one part of the story. So definitions are taxonomies. And by that, I mean, they create, they delimit and create limits. So a a drag taxonomy delimits, it defines what drag is. And then it also limits, it says what is drag um, and what is not drag. So the definition of drag is already a taxonomy. My new definition is also a taxonomy. It also is a box that creates limits of what is and what is not. But it's a box that is super broad and super vague. Um, And I think that's okay because drag is actually very vast. You go to shows and you see a whole bunch of stuff. I go to shows and I see a whole bunch of stuff, right? And the other thing that I really like about this definition that I come up with is it really puts the focus and the onus on queer identity play. And I think that that's really the heart of drag, that you are targeting identity, you're messing with identity, you're playing with identity, and you're presenting that to um, a crowd. Now, if you if you look at the definition, that traditional definition of drag that I gave you before, that one where it's like um, a man who performs as a woman. So all theater is fictive play, right? If you see a play, you know it's not real. But what makes drag unique from other types of theatrical performance is supposedly what you perform is different than what you are in real life, right? So you have to have this kind of contrast. And instead of having this type of contrast between, well, I think this is really a man in real life. Instead, I say, what are they doing on stage and how are they being queer on stage? So really putting the focus on how are they queering identity? How are they presenting a queer stage picture of identity? How are they messing with identity? Yes. Uh, And I particularly love your first chapter where you discuss right, uh, the language and uh, you're proposing here a redefinition of the discourse, as you say, chained to drag language. So you already introduced uh, a bit of what you're doing here, but let's uh, talk about language, uh, focus a bit more on language. As you say in the book that you just mentioned, this existing drag discourse invalidates uh, many people who do drag. Thank you for saying you like the first chapter. It's like 35 pages of theory. It's so dense. Sometimes I read it and I'm like, oh, I don't even know, right? It's a lot to take in. Um, the other chapters are a lot more fun. So um, drag discourse is a term that I use to describe um, how we archive gender bending through words. And I have this um, beautiful model created by Diana Taylor in her book, The Archive and the Repertoire. And she talks about theater And how theater is a repertoire, right? Because it's performed live and you can go see it the next night and you can go to um, the repertoire and have this experience without words, right? You can just feel something. But at a certain point, people stop performing and you need to archive that in order to maintain it. So how do you archive it? A lot of times you archive it through words. So definitely you can archive it through images or film. But at the end of the day, um, I'm going to tell my mom what show I saw through words, or I'm going to Google certain words in order to get to that image. So drag, um, drag discourse is how we archive a performance through words. 
And I think drag is really, really queer. I think it's inherently queer. Um, but our drag words tend to be very simple and also very essentialistic. Um, I have this experience um, that I talk about in the book, going to an academic conference and somebody asked me about my research, which is very, very common. And I just absolutely blow it. And I start using these essentialist words and then I'm like so embarrassed. Um, But it's because we don't really have these words and we don't, and we tend to use drag discourse as shortcuts to larger meanings. So drag discourse is the indication that we don't have words to talk about drag in a holistic and comprehensive way. And that is really important because drag spreads through discourse. You've gone to drag shows, I've gone to drag shows, but not everybody can go to a drag show, right? So the major way that drag spreads is through these discursive means. And also discourse shapes our understanding about what drag is. So in my intro chapter, I have this, um, a case study of this drag queen performing this I Dream of Genie drag queen act. And she's at this drag event and she performs as I Dream of Genie, Barbara Eden. And the crowd is like, yeah, yeah, they're so into it. And then at the end of the act, she does this strip all the way down. And at the end, the audience sees uh, her body and her body, she has breasts, she has a vagina. And then they're just like, uh, what? I thought we were watching drag, but this is somebody who has like a female body. And so it's not drag anymore. Right. And then the producer has to come out and say, you know, don't worry about it. She was assigned male at birth. And then audiences are like, oh, if you're assigned male at birth, then it's okay for you to perform femininity. And then that makes you a drag queen. Right. So that understanding, those essentialist drag discourses shaped how people could enjoy that act in that moment, right? They couldn't just enjoy it for its queerness because they were trying to fit it into drag discourse. So in my intro, I talk about how we can redefine drag discourse away from essentialism by really focusing on the the theater triad of intent, method, and impact. This is very theater studies, very performance studies. So This particular formula, if we look at the intent, what the performer intends to do, the methods in in theater, a lot of times you can glean methods by, um, you can glean intent by methods because um, actors take steps on stage to communicate and then the impact um, on the audience. So if we focus on looking at the queerness in the intent and the methods, and if that queerness is it communicated to the audience in some way that has the impact, then we are moving away from um, focusing on the body. And this helps us move away from false conclusions about efficacy. It also helps us move away from discluding acts from being dragged just because they don't fit into drag discourse. Um, So I think it's a particularly helpful formula to redefine around uh, intent, method, and, and impact. More complicated, more complicated than I could say to that person at that um, conference. <laughs> but I should have. I didn't. I learned from my mistake I put in the book. Yes. And, and you will help us try to articulate that better as well. I'm still trying to figure out who started this, this story uh, of that drag means dress as a girl I've never found any sort of primary source to corroborate that. Uh, there is no primary source that I've ever found that de- that accurately, with evidence, defines who com- came up with drag and what it means. So it really, 
needles me when any kind of story says this is the origin of dragon it's like we don't know these origins and the reason we don't know them is because they were not written down in some public record because they were not sanctified so maybe somebody knew at one time maybe somebody else knows but i don't know and i have never found anything that says this is what drag is and and you're right even our history our etymology what we say what drag means is codified in that essentialist language. Like this is a man dressing as a woman. Yes. But so the first chapter is provides this, this great um, template for us to think about drag language and discourse. But then, as you said, uh, comes the fun part where you actually talk about the performances and you use specific frameworks in each chapter to analyze these different uh, performances. So we start with variety and vaudevillian male impersonators of the late 19th century. And you look at them through a process that you define here as cross-identification. So I want you to tell us what cross-identification means um, and how does it apply to these specific performances? First of all, I want to give credit to, I have all of these frameworks, identification, cross-identification, revisionary identification, and disidentification. And they're really building on um, legendary scholar Jose Munoz's theory of disidentification and the conversations he gets in. So without him, I could have never conceived of of this. Um, But the the fun stuff starts with uh, male impersonators. And this was actually the case study that I proposed with my PhD um, application. I said, I'm going to do gender bending and I like to look at male impersonators. And the reason that I wanted to look at male impersonators is because there's not a ton of stuff written on them, but there is definitely more stuff written on them than any other case study um, that I examined in my book. And so I was a little bit familiar with it. And a lot of times male impersonators are written about as like these like proto-lesbian superheroes that were like opening up the doors for like gender and sexual expression. Or sometimes they're written about as like these blank slates where people were just like imposing a variety of sexual desires on them. And I really thought that if we looked more closely at the active intents and methods of these performers, we might get a better picture of why were they they were so successful. So like successful su- male impersonators were successful because they made money and because audiences went back. So whatever their intents and their methods were, these were effective, right? And I thought if we really looked at intents and methods, we could get a better picture about if these acts were revolutionary. They're for sure drag, right? Because they're they're doing something queer with identity, but I really wanted to know more about that story. How could we understand them more fully as a form of complex drag? So um, I want to talk about cross-identification, but first I will just give you a little um, primer on um, male impersonation and variety. So variety was a performance um, field that was very popular in like the 1850s in urban areas and um, male impersonation had not been done before variety. So you had female impersonation in play, in venues like circus and um, like minstrelsy, but you didn't really have the equivalent of male impersonation in those fields. Sometimes you had like women being cross-cast in, in like young men's roles or things like that, but, but not the equivalent of female impersonation. Along comes variety, which was kind of a low-budge entertainment forum started in concert saloons for like 
lower to sometimes middle-class white guys who wanted to like drink beer and then have some entertainment. And then variety was like a series of individual acts and those spaces were not very lady friendly. Um, and so, but they paid pretty well. And so, um, a lot of women performers wanted to get into them. And so a lot of them started doing these male impersonations and the male impersonations basically protected them from sexual harassment because they looked like men and they talked like men and they made lewd jokes and they made sexual comments and they spit and they swore. Um, but they were also a novelty act. So part of the novelty was they looked a ton like men. So you didn't even, you couldn't see anything about them that looked womanly or feminine or whatever other kinds of words you want to use. Um, but they advertised themselves as uh, women. So the most famous male impersonator in Variety was Annie Hindle. And she used to advertise herself as like, Miss Annie Hindle, performer of men and manners of the day. So this is the process of cross-identification. And cross-identification drag is you look so much like a man on stage that the audiences only see you as a man, but they already have that knowledge that you're a woman from your advertising. So the less woman you look, the more talented they think you are and the more money you get. Because this is commercial, right? It's, it's about um, uh, getting money in the end. So you really, really have to cultivate a firm understanding in people's minds and already the definition of drag, this is built into the definition of drag, that you are a woman and if you cannot be seen as a woman, that's because you're so talented, you're so good at performance. And so even though Annie Hindle was like, pretty masculine in her everyday life, people would say, oh, it's because you're so committed to your stagecraft. You actually are a woman, right? This is how she made all her money. And what is really, really amazing is we know that this was the model of her making her money because there are archival records when she stopped being able to maintain a cross-identification drag and her career really tanked. And this is from archival records um, pulled together by Jillian Roger. Um, Annie Hindle was into the ladies. She liked the ladies uh, and she kind of dressed masculinely in her life. And she had this dresser with her same name, Annie Ryan. Um, and one day they were somewhere in some other city in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, Annie Hindle, um, who was known as this great male impersonator, decided she wanted to get married. So she found a minister and she looked very masculine in her outfit. And she also told the minister her name was Charles which was actually the name of Annie Hindle's first husband. So they're doing all this weird name Ooh. stuff. But anyway, I know. Anyway, the this minister married the, um, Annie Hindle and Annie Ryan. And the papers picked this up. And instead of being like, this minister doesn't know what a male impersonator is, the paper said, um, is Annie Hindle actually a man? And as soon as there was suspicion that she was a man, her career tanked. Because she had been resting on this assumption that her novelty of her act was that she looked very masculine, but she was really a woman. When the fact that she might have not been a woman was like the fact that she was um, may have been a man um, was part of the ether. Nobody wanted to go see her anymore because they didn't think she was doing drag. Right. Just like the I dream of Jeannie example. They didn't think she was doing drag, so they didn't want to go see her. Her career tanked. Very luckily, she was a good saver. 
And she and Annie Ryan just bought a nice house in New Jersey. They just lived the rest of their life in there. So it has a really good story. But anyway, that's cross-identification. It's when you are cultivating something in people's minds to say, it doesn't matter how you look. I know who you really are. And this is your talent. This is how you are queering identity. So you just mentioned there a little bit of uh, uh, your archival research. And as you know, I'm a historian, so that already like piqued my interest here. And so I'm going to shamelessly steal a question that you ask on your book. You say that male impersonation was practiced largely before sound or video recording and photography capable of capturing live action movement on stage. And so you ask, how then does one study the performance process of a performance with no contemporary repertoire and a limited archive? Again, you, you, you're uh, borrowing from Diana Taylor, uh, but um, what are the sources that allow you to tell the story? Um, it's difficult. <laughs> um, Jack Halberstam says, uh, we can't know what we can't know. You know, so... I don't know. There's a lot of stuff about Annie Hindle's life I will never know. And there's a lot of stuff about her performances um, I won't know. We can only know what's archived and what's archived again with the Donna Haraway. It's a partial perspective. Um, but I think when we look through the archives, what we can actively try to do is um, avoid making assumptions. And instead, when we look at performance, we can try to find clues about intent, method, and impact. So like, there's absolutely no evidence that Annie Hindle was like a trans man or the like time and place equivalent of like a gender invert. And there's no evidence that she wasn't right. And we can't know what we can't know, but that means that we have to let that question be open that we actually don't know what her real identity was because we don't have that archived. So we really have to focus on what she was putting out there when she was doing ads. She was using, you know, Miss Annie Hindle and what she was doing on stage and then what she was trying to get done, aka how to make her money. Yeah, that's the, one of the most difficult things for me is that people want a very uh, you know, black and white answers about identities of people in the past. And as a historian, I have to keep repeating that, you know, as you said, we don't know what we don't know. Right? So the, the next chapter, you you use Gloria Anzalua's uh, Mestiza Consciousness as a framework when you analyze the Teatro Campesino Teatrista's bending process. And I found this uh, really fascinating. And could you talk a little bit about that? But first, please provide some context to anybody who's not familiar with the group's history. So let me talk a little bit about El Teatro Campesino, which is translated as the Farm Workers Theater. Um, it was this performance troupe that was an artistic arm of the Chicano Civil Rights Movement. And specifically in 1965, where they really got off the ground, they were very focused on... Um, uh, unionizing and labor rights, and um, they were working with the United Farm Workers um, cause causes quite a bit, and so they would do a lot of um, skits and plays um, to educate workers about their rights, about um, like human rights violations, about their right to unionize. Um, about how they were being exploited. So they were really about social justice and especially focused on uh, Chicano civil rights. 
They moved from um, Delano to San Juan Batista in the 1970s, and their their focus switched a little bit. They um, really focused on creating theater and art around like uh, Chicanismo and in, Indigenismo, things that were going on in the world like Vietnam, um, stuff like that. Towards the end of the San Juan Batista period, some uh, performers needed to move away for other opportunities. And then one of the main figureheads, Luis Valdez, uh, took control of the troupe and made it a little bit more commercial. So this is where you get, like, for instance, your um, movie of Zoot Suit with uh, Edward Jade Almost. And in that 19, late 1970s, 1980s period, all of the archives of all of their work was moved to the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I was getting my PhD, but they were closed um, until 2009. So I started um, my PhD program in 2008. And so um, I took a Chicano theater class and the professor was like, these archives are brandly uh, newly open to the public. So you need an assignment where you go in to the archives. So I was able to go into these archives that had been closed to the public for decades. Um, and it was super exciting because there was a lot of controversy about why they were closed. So um, this is actually, this chapter is actually the very first chapter of the book that I wrote because I had that very early project where I was going to the archives and we had read Yolanda Borlas Gonzalez's book about El Teatro Campesino. Um, and she talked a little bit about um, sexless performances. She talked about how some women troop members really, really hated performing the women's roles and they felt like the organization was like kind of sexist. And so they had to like perform sometimes these like sexless roles, which are mytholo mythological roles. They would perform as Diablos, they would perform as angels, they would perform as Calavera skeletons, um, and sometimes masculine and sometimes feminine and sometimes not. And when I went into the archives, and Yolanda Borlas Gonzalez talks about this kind of briefly in her book, and when I went into the archives, there were so many examples of this, of uh, Coral Valdez, Olivia Chumachero, um, Diane Rodriguez, playing these roles again and again and again. And there were like recordings of them talking about like, yeah, we didn't like all of the women roles we had to play, but we loved these roles. And when I saw these roles, I just thought like, this is drag, right? This is absolutely gender bending, but they didn't fit with our drag discourse. Like it was really hard for me to explain to people how this was drag. So if we look at the traditional definition of drag, we say, you're bending because you're presenting on stage something on stage that's fundamentally different than your body. But with these particular roles, these sexless roles, these mythical roles, the performing body really didn't matter. What they were doing on stage is creating a sexless character. And anybody in El Teatro Campesino could perform a sexless character. So men and women would audition for the same parts. And sometimes the characters had no gender. Sometimes they were masculine. Sometimes they were feminine. It didn't matter. These parts were up for everybody. So in one way, they're doing something very queer on stage. In the other way, they're, it's really hard for me to explain how this is dragged because they're not contrasting it to their body. And so I use this model of revisionary gender bending. And revisionary gender bending basically says... Um, you are creating a performance in which your performing body is not hidden like it is with cross-identification cross casting, but um, 
it just doesn't mean anything to the performance. What, what the, the drag part of the queer part is, is what you're presenting on stage with your body, with your characterization, with your inhuman characterization. Like all actors are human and you're performing something non-human. So that's a form of drag. Um, and when I was trying to develop revisionary gender bending, um, I was also thinking about Gloria Anzaldúa's Mestiza Consciousness from Borderlands La Frontera. And she specifically talks about, Chicana, she's talking about Chicana women. And she says, um, you know, we're asked to be one thing, um, but Chicana women are not one thing. They're multiple things. And a lot of those things um, contrast. She says, like, they're part of colonizers and they are also part of colonized. You know, they are part of white people and they are also part of indigenous people. So Gloria Anzaldúa's theory of mestiza consciousness is basically this model that says Chicana women cannot choose one thing. They can be multiple things. Those things can conflict. And when they conflict, you see the whole picture. Chicana women can live in the whole picture of themselves and they can move forward. Um, the mestiza consciousness um, term that uh, Anzaldúa uses the most is both and. And I thought this was a really fitting metaphor for these teatristas in El Teatro Campesino because um, the reason they were part of the troupe was because they were Chicana. This was a Chicano civil rights uh, organization. And the reason that they stayed with the troupe and they believed in this cause was because they were embodied Chicana. But that identity for why they were performing these roles didn't have a role in what the bending meant. So that's revisionary gender bending. And I see that through um, the lens of uh, Anzal Dua's Mestiza Consciousness. But I do think revisionary gender bending can be used in different forms of drag. I would not use that framework of uh, Mestiza Consciousness for any other group of performers except for Chicanx or Latinx performers. Another thing that I found really interesting in your book is that something that I've been noticing in, in my oral history project is how, you know, drag performances, we, we, uh, people are not just performing gender, masculinity, femininity, and say there's so many other things being performed and a very important uh, part of that is race. So you bring that up with the Teatro Campesino, but it, it, it comes really... It becomes very clear here in the chapter where you discuss uh, performances of queer black women in, I think it's sort of the, the late first half of the 20th century. So what's the counter-identification process that you analyze in chapter four and how is it expressed in the performances of these queer black women that you discuss here. And I'm, again, very interested in the role of race in this and how their performances of masculinity, as you show here very well, is different from those of the white male impersonators that you talked about before. Yeah, you are so right. When we talk about gender and we don't talk about other intersections like race, socioeconomic, sexuality, ability, um, those, those things are inextricably connected. You cannot separate them out. So if you are not talking about them, then you are just occluding the more privileged identities. You know, this is Kimberly Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality. If you are talking about gender bending, people can't gender bend in a vacuum, right? Because your body is always raced, uh, visibly able-bodied or uh, disabled, right? You can't remove those identities from the implication of the, the gender bending. 
So um, this chapter talks, it, start, it starts by talking about uh, 1920s Harlem Renaissance and the types of performances that would go on in um, Harlem Renaissance spaces, um, the uh, uh, very pejoratively named Jungle Alley, but also places like Toba, which is the theater owners booking association, which is also sometimes associated with or called the Chitlin circuit. These were performance places for um, black performers. Black performers uh, were not allowed to perform in variety, weren't allowed to go see variety shows. Um, Almost no uh, black performers, I think none, but I've only seen the archives I've seen, uh, performed in vaudeville, and almost none could go to vaudeville. So a Black performer really had to perform in Black spaces. Now, white people could go to those Black spaces, but Black people couldn't go to the white spaces, right? So the types of there's a type of performance that's really popularly performed during the Harlem Renaissance, and this was a performance that I call queer butchness. It was super popular. It was very recognizable in Black spaces, and it's Basically, when um, a black woman or a black non-man performed this kind of butch masculinity. Now, whereas Annie Hindle was trying to look and pass like a man, these performances are not intended to look or pass like men. They are intended to look uh, erotic and sexual and fun and flirty and uh, glamorous and slick by um, looking very masculine on somebody who is for sure not a man. So um, the person who's most well known for this is Gladys Bentley, but some other famous performers um, did this kind of uh, butch Uh, queer butchness, like Ma Rainey would do it, Bessie Smith would do it. So this was like a very normal staple. And one of the reasons that we know that they um, were not trying to pass as men is because a lot of times these performances were used as a mode of signaling their queer desire and that they were available for the ladies to come up and uh, talk to them and flirt with them and go on dates with them. And so really this type of performed slick masculinity was um, what I call a counter-identification drag practice. It was intended to signal, I am queer. I'm not trying to look like a straight man. I'm not trying to look like um, like a cisgender lady. Uh, black women are hist- were historically removed from even the context of true womanhood and ladyship. That was like something that white that was available only for white women. But these types of looks specifically were a way to telegraph that they were queer. So I start with this Harlem Renaissance performance stuff that's going on in the 1910s, 1920s, kind of petering off a little bit with the um, uh, Great Depression. And then we pick it back up in the 1950s and the 1960s, specifically with Stormy Delavier, who was the MC of the very famous um, female impersonation troupe called the Jewel Box Review. And a lot of people like to call Stormy Delavier a male impersonator. But just like you said, what she was doing was not akin to male impersonation in variety. And remember, male impersonation didn't exist before variety. So it's not a big catch-all term. Male impersonation describes a very specific term that was cultivated by white women for a very specific reason. Rather, Delavier is doing this like queer butchness thing that was in the tradition of other black performers like her in other black spaces like she's performing. The Jewel Box Review um, 
was a traveling troupe. They would advertise themselves as um, 25 men and one girl. And the 25 men were like um, these female impersonators. And then the one girl was um, Stormy Delavier. And shockingly, they toured this. And a lot of times they would go to black spaces. Um, a lot of times they would go to queer spaces. But then also they would tour to these spaces that were um, predominantly like white straight people. And we do have some reviews of people who would go to this show in these white straight spaces. And a lot of times they didn't know Delavier was gender bending. They thought that she was just a cisgender man, MC, among all of these female impersonators. And Delavier did some kind of reveal at the end of her performance. And the archives are not clear what that reveal was exactly, but she would reveal something to show that she was not a cisgender man. And these audiences would be shocked. The Black audiences in the Black spaces were not shocked. The queer audiences in the queer spaces were not shocked because they recognized she was doing this counter-identification queer butchness. But if you were not familiar with that type of drag, Delavier might be able to pass for a man and then you would be um, shocked. So counter-identification is specifically the type of drag that is cultivated to look queer in a way that aligns yourself with the queer community. And we have a little bit of evidence for showing how Delavier's act was this counter-identification type of drag. It was meant to be read as queer rather than cisgender man because Delavier is famous slash infamous for being part of the Stonewall Uprising. And there are many varied accounts of what actually happened to start the Stonewall Uprising. This is one account. I'm not saying it is the true account. I don't know the true account, but it is one that has been codified and written down. So I will tell you, supposedly Storm Delavier was the quote unquote first punch of Stonewall. And this is how the story goes. Um, Delavier was hanging out at the Stonewall Inn, drinking whatever, um, and the cops raided the Stonewall Inn bar and um Delavier was arrested because at the time there was an ordinance that said you know quote unquote women had to wear a certain number of women's articles of clothing and Delavier wasn't so Delavier was getting arrested for uh being queer sometimes the story goes that Delavier was just walking home and saw um a gay man getting beaten by the police at the Stonewall Inn and went to help the guy who was getting getting beaten up and was mistaken for um, another gay man and then got arrested by cops. But either way, both stories end the same way where Delavier is getting arrested by cops. Um, people are resisting. Delavier punches the cop who's trying to arrest. And then everybody's like, oh, I think we can physically fight back as well. And then um, everybody physically fights back, right? And Stonewall lasts for, for three more days. Again, I don't know if this story is true, but what I find interesting about both those narratives is that Stormy Delavier had the skills to pass to certain groups as a cisgender man. So Delavier didn't like to, but certainly wa um, was... Uh, was able to look to white straight audiences as a non like a non queer person, and Delavier didn't right. So instead of just blending, Delavier looked queer enough to be targeted by uh, police. So that is counter identification drag. It's the type of drag that you cultivate that looks queer, but it's intended to look queer, so it aligns you with a queer community. 
The last type of performance that you discuss here, we, we arrive uh, in the final chapter at contemporary drag kinging. And you look at it through the lens of disidentification. And you write here that disidentification and gender fucking are two sides of the same methodological coin. I found that very uh, interesting. So tell us a little bit about that, but how and why do you see contemporary drag kinging as a form of disidentification? Once again, I have to give all credit for the concept of disidentification, which I am using and expanding on to Jose Munoz um, in his very famous book, Disidentifications. And he is in conversation with other identity theorists like Luis Althusser's um, uh, concept of identity. So um, Munoz defines disidentification as creating new meaning out of identity by rethinking the abjection within a marginalized identity. So um, here is the example that I give in my classes. Um, Luis Althusser's Little Theoretical Theater is a story where a cop sees a pedestrian. The cop says, hey, you there. The pedestrian stops like, oh, I'm the you, stops and turns around. That's the whole story. When we talk about disidentification, we say, like, let's say that cop saw somebody who looked kind of queer and said, hey, you F word, you know, the gay slur, the F word, right? Hey, you F word. So identification is if you're walking down the street and you're like, oh, I don't like that term, but I know that that's supposed to be referring to me because I look kind of queer. So you identify yourself with that term. Counter identification is maybe you turn around and you say to the cop, like, you can't say that to me. Like, I'm gay and I'm proud. How dare you use this term? But with disidentification, you turn around to the cop who's just said, hey, you F word. And you say, are you hitting on me? Right. Because you change, you live in that term, but you change what it means. You know, it changes, change what it can imply. It's no longer this disempowered term. You're still living in that identity. It just means something a little different. So um, I went to a lot of drag king shows as a grad student. And one of the things that really blew my mind about um, drag king shows is there were so many types of acts at a drag king show. Again, you live in drag discourse and you say, I'm going to see a lot of women performing as these very like typical boorish men, right? But you, when you go to a drag show, you see a whole bunch of acts. Um, some acts are traditional, some acts are non-traditional, but every single act of drag show is doing something queer. And uh, I really wanted to give a name to the variety of queerness that was being done at shows. So I used disidentification to talk about the types of acts that occur at drag king shows um, that um, reorder what certain identities can mean, right? You don't change the identity, but you reorder the implications of identity. So um, a very popular act at a drag king show, I don't know if you've seen these acts. Um, I call them female femming. Sometimes you'll hear them called like burlesque or neo-burlesque or bio-queening or faux-queening. It's basically when somebody who identifies as a woman performs femininity. But these acts were always queer. It wasn't just a woman performing femininity. They would do high femininity, or sometimes they would be fat or hairy or have beards, right? And so what they were doing was really queering or messing with the concepts of feminine desire, right? Like expanding those notions and saying, I am desirable and I am feminine, even if I have a beard. A lot of times they would like... um, 
be very feminine. And then they would also have like strap ons to be like, I can be the penetrator and I'm still feminine. Like this role doesn't have to make me masculine. I mean, you know, drag, drag, drag shows are wild. They're super fun. Um, so that's disidentification drag. And then, um, there's some acts that are a little bit extra and I call those drags gender fucking and gender fucking is a term that might be kind of shocking, but it is pretty common in drag spaces. And the difference between a disidentification and gender fucking is that um, gender fucking is a more aggressive confronting of identity specifically to break down the essentialism or the primacy of identity relationships. So instead of just kind of changing what identities can mean or imply, you're actively messing with what identities we see as natural or normal. So I talk about drag king acts I call body breaking. Um, I saw some of these acts at the San Francisco uh, drag king contest, which is an annual contest. There's one act that I'm just absolutely in love with. It's this Delicio del Toro act. You can Google it. You can find it on YouTube. But anyway, Delicio del Toro comes out as this very machismo um, uh, luchador right? And he's doing this like Mexican wrestler act. And he's like got this mustache and armpit hair. And he has like his mask on and stuff. And then he pulls down his top and he has really big boobs with nipple, pa- uh, uh, nipple tassels on them, right? But it doesn't make him feminine. He just keeps performing masculinity. And at first you're like, oh, boobs, he's just ending the act. But then you're like, no, he's showing that boobs can be masculine too, right? He's breaking the meanings of those secondary sex characteristics and that gender presentation. So disidentification and gender fucking is really a way to target the implications of certain identities and mess with them um, and present new versions of identities. And sometimes these are, you know, traditional drag king acts, but there's a ton of acts that show up at drag king shows Um and these acts are very, very typical at drag king shows. So it's not like these acts are, are, are unusual. These methods are employed by a ton of different performers who feel like they fit within the definition of drag kinging. Yes. Uh, if anybody happens to be in northern Mexico, there is this amazing competition. And the third edition is about to start. I, I'm just uh, can't wait to see anything I can online. It's called La Masacre. It's horror drag, but it's all kinds of disidentification, gender fucking, all the types of different uh, out-of-the-box drag have a home in this competition. So Horror drag fits right into that. I really like Dragula because it kind of shows that. Um, and then one last thing I want to say about Delicio del Toro. You made this great comment that we don't just break gender rules in absence of other identities. Delicio del Toro also is performing machismo. He's performing a racialized type of masculinity. And at the end, he pulls out of his crotch a burrito and he sprays the burrito contents on the audience. Um, And at one point, the audience also showers him with tortillas. So when he is breaking these concepts of gender, he is also breaking the concept of a stoic type of machismo. He's like, I can embody machismo. I can embody these stereotypes and I can still be masculine and virile, even though I don't have these body parts. And I can also show that this is a constructed type of racialized masculinity. Yes. Uh, if, if for folks who 
do not have the experience, uh, who do not experience drag. There's so much going on on those stages, right? It's a commentary on so many things. So if you're just expecting, right, uh, this performance of, of, of a pretty, you know, the performance of pretty, right, of a pretty lady, um, you really should uh, go and go into any local club that has, you know, live drag shows and see that there's a lot more going on. Yeah, and some people get it right and some people get it wrong. I've seen white queens uh, perform some really problematic and racist things. Um, yes. So it's not like these spaces are perfect, but they are spaces uh, where people are um, trying to create some kind of impact and they're engaging in, they have an intent, they're engaging in specific methods to create an impact. So it's not perfect, but it is it is doing something. It is an act of uh, a political act. Yes. Oh, God, I know we could talk shop here for, you know, three more hours, uh, talk about drag. That's my favorite thing to do. So thank you for indulging me. But uh, we're about to run out of time. So but before we go, can you tell us uh, what are you working on next? What are your new projects? So I am extending this discourse examination into pop culture, digital media. So um, with pop culture, digital media, there's no repertoire. Everything is archived, which means the words we use to describe things are even more important because there's nothing where you can just like go in and be part of a show. You know, even if you were recording it, like that's recorded, those words are recorded. So I'm very interested in how um, certain words are circulated in digital meaning uh, media as a form of meaning making and specifically as a form of queer meaning making. Like, why do people call Lady Gaga a drag queen? Like, what does that mean, right? What are people implying with that term? What does that chain to? I'm interested in how um, realness circulates on RuPaul's Drag Race and how that has very different different implications from its origin in um, Black ballroom culture. So I'm really looking at the types of words that are used to describe um to describe queerness in digital media. So that is what I'm working on. And then I have a little side project, uh, to, a little side project to my side project. I also look at romance themes in uh, young adult high fantasy books because why not? I look at a lot of words and I unpack a lot of things. And at the end of the day, sometimes you just want to study uh, young adult books. But young adult books also uh, reproduce a lot of these uh, same themes and the words they use uh, uh, and the ways that they represent and characterize are important to look at too. So those are the two things that I am doing right now. Okay, I want to read about all of it. So when you have anything new, uh, please come back to talk to us. Oh, thank you so much. Well, Meredith, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you as well. And to the folks listening, thank you for tuning in to this episode to new, of New Books and Gender Studies a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke with Meredith Heller about Queering Drag, Redefining the Discourse of Gender Bending, published by Indiana University Press in 2020. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.